If you please stand for the reading of God's word. Uh, today we're going to be reading out of 1 John once again, um, chapter 2, verses 28, and then into chapter 3 and down to first, verse 10. If you need a pew Bible, the pew Bible, you can, the page for this can be found on 708 and then on to 709. So please follow along as I read. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears, he may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he has, uh, was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, do not let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he may, might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for... Uh, his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin, because he has been born of God. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you right now, and we thank you for this opportunity to gather um, in worship and in a in the knowledge that you are a very gracious God who has given us the chance to become part of your family. And I pray that through this message, you would give Bruce the words to speak and allow us to understand the gravity of the benefits to being a part of God's family and to grant us assurance one way or the other. In your name, amen. Thank you, Jeremy. appreciate you leading us in the reading of God's word the authority of God's Word that we are going through here in the book of 1 John in our assurance series. How many fathers we have here this morning? Raise your hand if you're a dad. Several of you are fathers. How many of you dads you can still remember when your children, or if you just have one kid, was born? Can you still remember that? Sure. All right, that's good. I like that. I have two boys, which most of you know that. They are now ages 19 and 15. Their names are Tyler and Jack. And even though they were born what seems like a long time ago, now I can still remember when they were born in the hospital. In fact, they were born right here in Kansas City at St. Luke's North Hospital right there on Berry Road. And for nine months, uh, like uh, all of us, uh, you know, I was wondering, what are they going to look like you know, before they're born? How are they going to turn out? What are they going to look like? And, and then they're born, and you kind of watch them grow from being babies to toddlers to going into middle school, then high school. And, and as they grow, you can't help but begin to wonder, what are they going to be like? And for 18 years, 
you begin to see the small version of yourself. And that's when you realize, for better or worse, my boys are, well, they're like their dad. They're like me. And that's a scary thought. Because in some ways, in big ways, my boys look like me, they sound like me, they think like me, eat like me, smell like me, and act like me. And typically, when they act in a way that is commendable, when they act in a way that is honorable and pleasing, I take credit for their DNA, for their genes. Yes, those are my boys. And when they do something embarrassing, irritating, otherwise strange, I look at their mother and remind her, they're your boys. <laughs> now, throughout our summer series in 1 John, we have seen that John has presented us with a series of tests to help us discern. In other words, to help us judge for ourselves if we are true believers in Jesus Christ or if we are, in fact, false believers. And in our passage today, John gives us another test. You might call this sort of like a, a paternity test for everyone to take. And the results of this particular test reveals that every person is a child of one of two spiritual dads. You're either a child of the devil or you're a child of God. And so in essence, John is, is asking this question for us. He's throwing out this question and he's asking us, who's your daddy? Who's your daddy? And notice here, kind of the summary, the main point or main idea here that John's getting, telling us is that the children of the devil are manifested by unrighteous living. Whereas the children of God are manifested by righteous living. This paternity test is found in Verse 10 of chapter 3, look at it with me one more time. Jeremy read it for us, but notice it again. John writes, he says, In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifested. In other words, it's re they're revealed. They, they show themselves. They show their colors. They show their heart. They show whose daddy they are. And then he tells us what that test is. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. You see, the distinguishing mark that John says that identifies who's your daddy is, in other words, how you live. John says one practices righteousness and one practices unrighteousness. John says the person who does not practice righteousness is not of God. That is, God is not her or his spiritual father, the devil is. Now, what is righteousness? What does John mean by this word? What's he talking about? Well, simply we could define it this way. Righteousness means right living. Now, it's not right living according to what you think or what our culture thinks. It's right living according to what God thinks. And how do we know what God thinks is right living? Because we have his word. 
His word tells us. He's revealed it to us. So righteousness is right living according to God. It's a word that describes moral behavior that is acceptable to our Heavenly Father. And John says that the practice of righteous living or right living is one of the distinguishing marks of a person who has born, been born of God. John uses the same phrase over in John chapter 3 when he talked to Nicodemus, that Pharisee, he used it, or, or, or when Jesus did, uh, being born again. It's the same idea. In fact, here, you go up a couple verses. In chapter 2 of 1 John, verse 29, John says, If you know that he is righteous, speaking of Jesus Christ, he says, You know that everyone who practices righteousness is what? Born of him. Now, how do you know who's your daddy? John makes it crystal clear. He says, our practice of right living is what gives evidence, is what manifests itself that we've been truly born again into God's family and that God is our daddy. John's paternity test is not to determine whether we sin or not, but rather to determine our heart attitude towards sin. Remember, we're living in an age of deception and deceivers. We spent the last two Sundays looking at this. An age of deception and deceivers. And these deceivers are out to deceive. And their deception is seductive and it is appealing. In fact, their claim today, just as it was in John's day, is the same. And basically their claim is this, that a follower of Jesus could still be a child of God and live like a child of the devil. That is a Christian could know that all his sins are forgiven and yet continue to live in sin day after day. That we can have assurance of eternal life and yet practice unrighteousness day after day. That's their claim, but it sounds pretty good, doesn't it? It sounds real good. However, John wants us to run from such deception. He's like, don't be duped by this. As a loving father, he warns us not to be led astray by this kind of false thinking. In verse 7 of this third chapter, he says, little children. And we've already seen that term. It's a term of endearment. It's a term of a father speaking to his children. And it comes, it's motivated by love and concern. And he's like, little children, listen, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. In other words, here's what John's trying to get across to us. The gospel is life transforming. Don't let anyone deceive you about its power to change your life now and for eternity. As we learned at Student Life Camp students, what did, what did our speaker, Sam Bott, say all the time? An encounter with Jesus, what? It's life-changing. An encounter with Jesus is life-changing. Embracing the gospel radically changes you. No one, John says, born of God, lives godlessly. There's a radical difference between a child of God and a child of the devil. The first shoves in sin like a Z-man sandwich at Joe's Kansas City Barbecue. And the latter runs from sin by practicing righteous 
living. So, we probably ought to pause here for just a moment. And we probably ought to consider a question. When you look at your own life, when you look at your heart, do you see any evidence of righteousness or right living? What do you point to? When you look at yourself, what do you point to? Do you see any evidence of righteousness or right living? Now, I'm not talking about never committing sin, because that's impossible. John's already dealt with that. John has already reminded us, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So John's not talking about a perfect life, a life of never committing any sin. It's not about that, but rather, are we practicing righteousness? Are we striving to live more like Jesus Christ? One of the things I love about John in this book here, I love this book, 1 John, in particular, is just how real he is. He doesn't mess around. He just comes right out. And he just lays it out on the table for us. And I love that about him. And he knows it's a struggle to practice right living. But he also knows the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he gives us now four incentives for righteous living that are all related to the gospel. And so I want to unpack this for us this morning. These incentives to live like Christ, these incentives to live righteously or right living, motivations you could call them. Look at it. Number one, the first incentive is God the Father loves us. God the Father loves us. John begins by declaring his amazement at God's love for us in John chapter 3 and verse 1 when he writes, Behold, behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called what? Children of God. Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know him. When John says, behold what manner of love, he is expressing a statement of astonishment. It's a statement of amazement, and it means to gaze at, that word behold, to ponder on. And this word behold, it's like a flashy neon sign calling us to see something. And in this case, it's calling us to see the amazement and how astonishing God's love is for you. That's how vivid God's love is to John. It's almost as if he can see it, and he wants us to see the love of God. He wants us to see how incredible it is. You know, we just got back from student life camp with the teens over here, the students. And, we, and at student life camp, we go out to the mountains of Rocky Mountain National Park there in Estes Park. You know, and I, 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 we love it out there. It's great. And we always take them into the, the park, Rocky National Mountain Park. We go hiking and let them just be in awe of the mountains. And it's always, I always get a kick out of some of the, the students who have never been to the mountains before. And when they go for the very first time, you're just in amazement. But I tell you what, Zach and I were talking, and, uh, and we were just, in, just gazing out of the, these mountains. And we both said, you know what? You just never get tired of this view. You, just, it, it's, you, are nev you never cease to be in amazement of the grandeur and beauty of it. And that's kind of what John is trying to get us to comprehend here. 
as incredible as the mountains are to behold, he wants us to know that God's love is even more incredible to behold, especially when you consider that God has bestowed his love upon us while we were still sinners. In fact, just consider what John writes in in the next chapter, in verses 4 through 10 of chapter 4, he says, In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the satisfaction for our sins. Listen, behold God's love for you. Don't let it ever grow old or cold in your heart. Stand in wonder and awe of the love of God and let it motivate you to practice righteous living. In fact, John now identifies, he basically says, because of God's great love, as you behold it, let it motivate you, and here's how it should. Because of it, notice number one, we are called God's children now. The name children of God is an awesome name. In fact, it's not just a religious name that we bear, it's a reality in our lives. We are called children of God. In the ancient world, a child would officially become the son or daughter of the father when the father named him or called him. And that's the same word translated called here that John uses. Through our faith in Jesus Christ, God the Father looks at us and he calls us his children, adopting us into his family. Now look at the beginning of verse 2, because the most important word in this verse is now. John says, beloved, now we are called children of God. Do you know what that means? It means that we are God's children when? Now. Today, if we have trusted Jesus as our Savior, this is not something we wait for. The problem is, we don't always feel like God's children, do we? We don't always show a family resemblance to our Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, especially when we are struggling with sin. It's kind of like when one of my boys gets into trouble then he ceases to resemble me as his father and instead resembles his, well, you know, his father. Yes, the reality is we are God's children now. That is our position before our father. Nothing can change that. We have been adopted into his family, and that can never change, but we are also a work in progress as God's children who stumble in our sin even as we strive to grow in Christ's likeness. But there's hope. Always there's hope. Look at this. Because of God's great love, second, we will be like Christ in the future. John writes in the rest of verse 2, he says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he, that is Jesus, is revealed, when he comes, when he appears, we shall be what? Like him, for we shall see him as he is. Kind of reminds me of that old story of the old farmer who loaded his wife and son into the truck and they went to the big city for the very first time in their life. And when he and his son checked into the hotel, he caught his first glimpse of an elevator. 
For the first time, he watched two beautiful shiny brass doors open, and then he saw an elderly gentleman get into that tiny room, and the doors closed, and he saw the lights above the elevator light up one after another, and then a few minutes later, the doors opened up again, and out stepped a young, handsome young man. This time, an elderly lady stepped into the elevator. The doors closed behind her, and again, the lights lit up one at a time, and finally, the doors opened again, and out stepped a beautiful young woman. At this time, the old farmer turned to his son and said, Son, go get Mama. <laughs> now, let's be honest. Don't you wish it was that easy to become like Christ? Go into an elevator, go up a few flights, come out, and all of a sudden, you're magically like Christ. All of us would like a change for the better, but the reality is none of us have arrived at the place where we want to be or where we should be as Christ followers. And John says, listen, there's hope. One day we will be like Jesus. There's hope for all those who think they need plastic surgery to make them look better. Don't waste your money, John says, because John is telling us that one day we will resemble Jesus Christ in all of his righteousness. There's hope for all those who rub people the wrong way because of our character flaws, our personality quirks, and just plain selfishness. John says one day we will be all that God saved us to be. There's hope for those who are tired of struggling with the same old sin. One day God will eliminate our sin nature and we'll be made perfectly righteous. Never again will we struggle with sin. It's true, I may not look like much right now, but just wait till God gets done with me. Listen, God is going to perfect a work of grace in my life and in your life. In fact, Paul, the Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians 1.6, being confident of this. In other words, count on it. That he, God, who began a good work in you, will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ, until the day when Christ returns. You will be like Christ if God is your daddy and you've truly been born again. But this hope is not an excuse to live like the devil until that day comes. John says, oh no. In fact, it's just the opposite. Because of God's great love for us, notice number three, we should live like Christ today. John writes in verse three, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. In other words, this hope that we will be like Christ ought to transform our lives, or in John's words, it ought to motivate us to purify ourselves now. It's the idea that our position as God's children now, and that position can never change, and the promise to be like Christ in the future will determine our practice today to live like Jesus Christ. And why should we want to live like Christ today? John says simple, it's because of God's great love for us. Listen, our incentive for righteous living is not rules. Rules never motivates anyone to follow after Christ. Our incentive is all about because we have a relationship with our Heavenly Father. When you love Jesus, you desire to be like Jesus. He is pure and holy, and we should desire the same thing. And if your desire is not that, then John says you need to look inward and check your heart and see if you've been truly born again. 
Listen, the greatest motivation for living like Christ is knowing the love of God for you. The more we know His heart of love for us, the less likely we will be to break His heart by living a sinful life. The second incentive for righteous living is God the Son died for us. God the Son died for us. Now, just stop and think about this. God the Father loves you so much that God the Son died for you. Now, why is John reminding us that Jesus died for us? Well, because John knows that this reality should compel us. It should motivate us to live like Christ in righteousness. Look at his logic here. Look how he's, what he's telling us and his reasons for here in these verses 4 through 8. Look at him with me again. Look what he says. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. And you know that he, that is Jesus, was manifested to take away our sins. And in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil." So, what we see here in these verses, 4 through 8, is John gives us two reasons why Jesus Christ came and died. The first reason, John says, was to deliver us from our sins. Jesus came and died to deliver us from our sins. So the logical conclusion of that is, don't practice sinfulness. Why? Because Jesus came and died for that sin. To take it away. The problem is sin abounds in all of our hearts. And only God can deliver us from our sins. You say, well, what is sin? I'm glad you asked, because John defines it for us. He simply says what? Sin is lawlessness. Now, we probably ought to ask the question, what is lawlessness? Well, it's not just falling short of God's standard. Lawlessness is outright rebellion against God. It's outright rejection of his moral law, of his word, of his authority and supremacy as God the Father. And so it's rebellion and rejection. That's lawlessness. That's our sinfulness. And in our sin, in other words, here's what happens. We rebel against our rightful king, and we basically say to God, I hate you and I hate your law, and I don't want anything to do with it, because I'm... A, a God to myself, and I'm going to live my own way the way I want. And most of the time, the way we want to live is motivated by the culture. It's influenced and shaped by the culture. And so we basically say, the moment we're born, even though we're babies, we are sin sinners by birth and by choice, and until something happens, until God's love intervenes in our heart, opens up our eyes and our heart to see our need for Jesus Christ, that is the way we continue to live. And we continue to be the children of Satan, the children of the devil, as John says. 
In our sin, we rebel against that. And that's why sin is nothing less than personal treason against the sovereign creator of the universe. In sin, listen to me, it's not just a one-time offense. What John's talking about here is that it's the habitual disposition of your heart in life that makes you an outlaw against God. Apostle Paul says, enemies of God. Because our sin problem is so great, we now see that a great rescue then is required. And this is why Jesus came. It's why he died on the cross, to take away our sins. In fact, that phrase, take away our sins, it's an awesome phrase and it means to remove something by lifting it up. It's the image of a strong man lifting up a very heavy object in order to carry it away. And that's exactly what Jesus did on the cross for you and I with our sins. He bore our sins on himself and he delivered us from our sins. So what we have here, it's almost as if John is coming to us as a father to his little children, and he's asking, why then? Why would you want to continue to practice sin when Jesus died to deliver you from it? John says, no one who abides in Christ will practice the sin that Jesus died to take away. Verse 6, he reminds us, whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Again, this doesn't mean we never sin. But it does mean that no one who abides in Jesus, listen to me, keeps on day after day practicing sin as an ongoing lifestyle. As one author writes, John is not setting before us a terrifying perfectionism oh no but he is demanding a life which is ever on the watch against sin a life in which sin is not the normal accepted way but the abnormal moment of defeat and john is also telling us here within these verses what the key is to winning over sin yes jesus came to take away our sin with his death but we still struggle with sin. So what's the key to overcoming it? He says the key is to abide. Abide in Jesus Christ. Abide in the truth of Jesus. And to abide simply means to be in fellowship with Jesus. To live in obedience to God's word. To allow nothing to come between you and your relationship with Jesus Christ. And so if you're here this morning and you are struggling with sin, and by the way, that's most of us, all of us. Now, obviously, some of us struggle with sin more than others because of where we are in our spiritual journey. And most of the time, we struggle with about one to three different sins ongoing. And if you're here this morning and you're struggling to win over sin, then ask yourself, am I abiding in Jesus? Am I abiding in his word? In the truth of his word? Am I living in obedience to God's word? And have I allowed anything to come between me and God? John gives us a second reason why Jesus came and died. It's not only to deliver us from our sins, but I love the second reason. 
this is awesome, to destroy the works of the devil. To destroy the works of the devil. And so the practical application of that, John says, is do practice righteousness. As believers, we are waging, do you realize this? We are waging this titanic spiritual war against sin and Satan. But don't fear. Don't be discouraged by that. John tells us in Revelation 5 that the warrior lamb, Jesus Christ, who defeated sin, is also our champion who has already defeated Satan. One pastor and author put it this way, Christmas is because God aims to destroy something. Christmas is God's infiltration of rebel planet Earth on a search and destroy mission. And that's exactly what Jesus came to do, and he accomplished it. Jesus invaded enemy territory, and he took out our enemy in total victory. The devil is doomed, even if he doesn't admit it. Now, that word destroy, though, it doesn't mean annihilate. Rather, it means to reverse the effects of something to render it inoperative, or to rob it of its power. And so what this is, Satan has not been annihilated. We know he still exists. In fact, Peter tells us he's like a roaring lion seeking to devour us. So he's still there, he's still present, and he still is the prince of this world. But his power has been reduced, and his weapons have been impaired. Yes, Satan is still a mighty foe. But remember what John tells us in 1 John 4, 4. You are of God, little children. He who is in you is what? Greater than he who is in this world, speaking of Satan. So don't continue to practice sin. Instead, John says, practice righteousness. Strive towards that. Since Jesus destroyed the works of the devil. Now, again, we probably ought to pause here for a moment. We probably ought to ask another question. Because here's why. I want you to see that our attitude to sin is of vital importance to John here in these verses. Getting confused getting even wrong-headed about the seriousness of sin can be a serious spiritual problem. Especially when the deception of our age in which we live even today basically says this. Sin is no big deal. That has crept into the church culture much less our secular culture. And we can be deceived into thinking, my sin is no big deal to my father. And John says, listen, you are way off. You are deceived if you think that. The reason John reminds us that Jesus died to deliver us from our sins and to destroy the works of the devil is to show the incompatibility of indifference to sin. <laughs> to show us that sin is a big deal. 
So here's the question. Do you think it's acceptable for Christians to sin? Don't. Don't. That's deception. John says, think again. It's not acceptable for us to sin. For us, sin is the exception, not the rule. You can be no more indifferent to sin than you could be indifferent to a rattlesnake in your house. That's why John warns us. In the middle of all this, in verse 7, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. In other words, as Christians, as proclaimed Christ followers, we look like Jesus Christ. We practice righteousness just as Christ is righteous. Again, let me clarify. We are not sinless like Jesus. Anybody here? Is that you? Raise your hand. I didn't think so. But folks, that does mean we are, as children of God, we are sin-hating, sin-fighting images of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And while we still have sinful patterns and sinful habits, do you realize our new habits of holiness are our prevailing lifestyle? Real change has happened in our lives. We've made a decisive break from our old way of life. And our new way of life is no longer characterized by sin, but it is characterized by righteousness. And this right living, listen, John is basically saying this, this right living that characterizes us, it is what gives tangible, visible evidence that we have been born of God through faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, we live out who we are. And John says, if you're born again, you're what? We're saved and we are children of God. In other words, who's your daddy? God the Father's your daddy. And you're like, how do we know? Look at your life. Which brings us to John's third incentive for righteous living. God the Spirit lives in us. John writes in verse 9, Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin. Why? Because he has been born of God. When we're born of God, here's what happens. This is a miracle. This is a radical miracle of what takes place here. What John is writing in his verses is radical. When we're born of God, God's Spirit, get this, implants his nature, his holy, divine nature within us, which John pictures as the seed. It's like a divine seed. And this new nature that we have by the Spirit of God through a new birth, through being born again, this new nature causes this dramatic, radical change in our lives. And John says that this divine seed gives birth to a new life that forsakes our old pattern of life and pursues a new path of righteousness. And this new birth, John says, 
And we're coming, circling around to the very beginning of the message. He says, this new birth, this divine nature, this seed by the Holy Spirit that's been planted of you, it is the distinguishing mark, it is the difference between children of the devil and the children of God. John writes in verse 10, In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Nor is he who does not love his brother. So how do you know you've been born again? How do you know if you're a child of God? John says practicing righteousness is the evidence that we've been born again children of God. Which means, get this, without this new birth, without being born again, Without this divine nature, this seed that's been planted in us, it is impossible to live like children of God. Sin will dominate us and Satan will have his way with you. However, as a result of the new birth, John says we cannot keep on sinning because we've been born of God and it is inconsistent with our new nature and God's Holy Spirit. We may struggle with sin. Oh, do we still struggle with it, right? Oh my gosh. We may even fall on occasion. I mean fall hard in our sinfulness. And when that happens, here's the difference between true children of God and the children of devil. When that happens, folks, listen, we will not be able to just excuse it away. We will not be able to just justify it. In fact, we will be in complete misery as children of God in our sinfulness until God breaks our hearts again and we are broken before God and we come to Him in humble repentance seeking his forgiveness and cleansing all over again. And so we deal with it. When we sin and stumble, we deal with it by, by confessing it to God and receiving his forgiveness and cleansing and changing our walk. And we are comforted to know that sin cannot ultimately win in our lives because we know, as John has already told us, that the one who is in us is greater than the one who is in the world. In other words, our Lord... Jesus Christ, he will pick us up and he will get us moving again in the right direction. But we must be broken by our sin. We've got to deal with it. And we go to our Heavenly Father and we repent and we confess it and we receive his forgiveness and cleansing and he wipes away the guilt and the shame all over. It's a beautiful thing. It is a beautiful thing. Why should we live like Jesus? Because God the Father loves us. Because God the Son died for us. And God the Spirit lives in us. But perhaps the greatest incentive for righteous living is number four. God the Son is coming back for us. That glorious day is coming soon. And John sees it as an awesome hope for the future. And a powerful incentive for the present. You go back to the end of chapter 2. And this is where we see this. What John writes in verse 28, he says, And now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. In light of Christ's coming, John gives us one command here. 
One command. Abide. Abide. In other words, John says, remain in Jesus till he comes. Remain in Christ. Remain in the truth of the gospel that you heard at the beginning of your salvation. In other words, don't be led astray. Don't be deceived. Don't depart from that truth. Instead, you abide in Jesus and you live like Jesus. And there are blessings from that. There are blessings of abiding in Jesus. And again, not perfectly. Nobody here does it perfectly. Notice these two blessings. You will be confident at Jesus' coming, John says. Say, what does that mean? Well, to be confident means having nothing to fear. It's boldness. I'm confident. Have nothing to fear. It describes a state of boldness, assurance, and courage. Whereas to be ashamed means having something to hide. It's the idea you've been caught. You've been caught in your sin. Now Jesus comes, and you know you've been caught. And you try to hide it is your first response. But you know it's useless because God knows everything. It describes one who shrinks back or tries to hide in guilt or disgrace. And so here's a question to think about. When Jesus comes, will you have confidence or will you be ashamed? Will you run towards him as a child runs to a loving father? Or will you shrink back and attempt to hide from him? Listen, God doesn't want us to shrink back from Jesus in shame when he comes, but rather he wants us to be filled with confidence and boldness at his appearing. And so John tells us that the surefire way to have that confidence when Jesus returns is to what? It's the one command. Abide. Abide in Jesus. That way, no matter when Jesus comes, we will be ready. So one of the blessings of abiding in Jesus is you will be confident in His coming. The second blessing is this. You will be certain you are God's child. In other words, it's the whole title of the series. You will have assurance. John says in verse 29, If you know that He is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. And so abiding in Jesus is evidence that you are a child of God. And abiding in Jesus is the key to living like Jesus. Think of it this way. The righteous Savior produces righteous saints. And so if you are abiding in Jesus, then you can be certain you are a child of God. When it's all said and done, there's really only one question that matters. Who's your daddy? It's the only question that matters in the end. Who's your daddy? And if God is your father, then strive to remain in Christ and resemble Christ in your life till Jesus comes. Do you realize Jesus came the first time as a baby in a manger? And now we as God's children, we are waiting 
for Jesus to come the second time as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so think about this with me. you got two comings or two appearings. You have the first coming of Jesus Christ, which has already happened. We celebrate it at Christmas. But we are waiting for the second coming. So there are two appearings, two comings. And we are living in between these comings, these appearings of Jesus Christ. And here's the deal, folks. John is calling us to do something in between these appearings. He's calling us to remain in Christ and resemble Christ as children of God in between. And as we do, here is my hope, here's my prayer for myself and for every one of us here. It's to embrace what Paul said in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Look at it with me. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. In fact, you know what I'd like for us to do? Is to say that out loud together. Will you join me in that? It should be on the screen behind me. Yes, it is. Here we go, Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning, and again, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for this little book that John has written for us for our benefit that we could discern our own hearts and to help us to judge whether we are truly believers in Jesus Christ or perhaps we are here and we have not yet become children of God. We are still in Satan's family. And Lord, I pray that you would do a work that only you can do by your spirit, that you would convict, you would challenge us, you would lead those who still need Jesus to run to his cross, to repent of their sin, and to receive him as their Savior. That they would be born again and experience the divine nature from you that radically changes their life. Lord, perhaps there are many here who are already Christians, but they are struggling with sin. Struggling to practice right living. Lord, give them your grace. Help them to see your truth, that in Christ there is victory. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. The praise team's going to sing, and as I do, this is your time to respond as the Lord leads you.